Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, my name is Micah Rook. Uh, if we have not met, I've been here for the last two years. I've been working at uh, Westchester University with crew and have been a member here for about two years. And I love it. I love my church and I love my job and what I get to do with my life. So I'm very thankful and I'm excited to be preaching this morning. So uh, Alabama lost last night and the Lord knew they would. So Raymond needed a, he needed a break, you know. <laughs> He needed, he needed to sit on the bench. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 63. And just quickly, most of us here are likely familiar with David's story. Uh, he's, he's a central character in the Old Testament. He wrote many of the Psalms, including the one we'll look at today. But when we think of David, I, I'm, I'm imagining what comes to mind is um, he, he's this great king of Israel. His victories, his successes... Uh, his title as the man after God's own heart. Maybe just the skillful musician that would play for Saul. A really popular one that we know, the, the story of David and Goliath. Even if you're not from a church background, you've heard that before. Um, God used this little insignificant boy to defeat a giant and this people to deliver Israel. Uh, he's then elevated as a military leader and has great success in his endeavors. Um, or maybe you think of the, the promise, the covenant God made him. Hey, you, your throne in your house will last forever. But our familiarity with his story, uh, for me at least, kind of causes you to grow accustomed to how chaotic his life was and how God preserved him. If you look at 1 Samuel, the second half, every title is like Saul tries to kill David. And then Saul tries to kill David. And then David sleeps in a cave. And David doesn't kill Saul. You know, it's just this crazy cycle. And um, led by Saul's rage towards David, he saw him as a threat and he wanted to kill him. Uh, Another well-known event, David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then has her husband intentionally murdered to cover up his sin. And then he would go on to lose that child. And then finally, for our context today, at the beginning of the psalm, it says, uh, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, years later after, after the Bathsheba incident, um, another one of his sons, Absalom, who killed another one of his sons, raises up this conspiracy to dethrone his father and kill him, thus causing David to run once again. So we see just in this snapshot of David's life, it's full of pain and difficulty and sorrow And for us, I think in the midst of life's difficulties, we've talked about this here at Christ Church, we live in the great contradiction. When when what we know and believe to be true about God is actually so seemingly different than what we experience. When we know and believe that God is good and loving, but sorrow just seems like the closest friend. When we know that God is sovereign and in complete control, but it feels like your life is in chaos and certain to, to nosedive and crash and burn. And when we know and believe the promises of God's word, but we just feel forgotten. We feel overlooked. God, are you seeing this? And you look at David's life and experience. Pretty recently in David's life, he received this promise. Your throne and your house will last forever. A few years later, he's on the run from his own son who's trying to kill him with all his people trying to kill him. A great contradiction that David lived in. 
And they're trying to establish Absalom as the new king. So how does he respond and how does his response impact us today? Um, do we or will we interpret life through the lens of our own wisdom and our feelings or, or submit to and rely upon God's revelation? What will we seek and give ourselves to? And it kind of seems like a simple question, but it's one of the greatest disciplines and struggles of this life. Who or what will we seek and what will we give ourselves to? So we're going to read Psalm 63 and then I'll pray and we will walk through the passage, right? So let's, let's read the passage. Psalm 63, um, I think I have the same page numbers as the Bible in the pews. So 479, if you don't have a Bible, reach under. You can take it home if you do not have one. So page 479, Psalm 63. And uh, Psalm 63, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed... And meditate you on, the, on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. God, would you bless this time? We're so thankful to be here uh, with your people, the people who you died for and redeemed, to sing praises, to remember who you are and what you've done for us. God, would you edify us as individuals and as a church this morning, and would you be glorified in everything? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so point one, if you're a note taker, is present longing. Seek the faithful God who satisfies in your faithful or in your present longing. So we see in verse one, he starts this psalm crying out to God and notice how personal this is. Oh, God, you are my God. He is not some impersonal deity far and away from David, but he is my God. He starts here the relationship between himself and God, and it includes all the ways that David thought about God, if you think about the Psalms, all the ways he describes him as my ruler and creator and sustainer, provider, protector, refuge, fortress. And the list goes on, and we'll see that throughout the passage. In the midst of his circumstances, too, understanding where he's at in the wilderness, it's quite a profound statement to start with, you are my God, despite these undesirable, frightening circumstances. And he then moves to his heart and posture towards God. He says, like a traveler in a land void of water, uh, so is my soul's thirst for you. He likens it to this, this physical thirst, which is, is as he's in the wilderness, he's experiencing these things physically and they're giving life and, and giving way to these spiritual realities that he, he experiences. That like he was hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness... 
It reminds him and reveals the spiritual truth and reality of his soul before God. Even more than that physical water, his soul thirsts for God to commune with him. And this is, uh, I don't know, I've never been in a desert without water, personally, but I think we all know that experience, or you can understand what he's capturing. I mean, if you're, if you're in a place without water and you're thirsty and the, mouth, or the tongue starts to stick to your mouth, all you would be thinking about is, where can I find water? Desperate, yearning, longing for that, that more than anything in that moment, your desire would be set there. And, and David knows uh, that, that God and God alone could satisfy this longing, could satisfy this, this soul thirst that he experienced. Just like Jesus with the woman at the well, if you're familiar with that story, says to her, hey, if you, you're going to drink from this physical water, and I can promise you, promise you that you'll thirst again. But if you drink from the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. So for us this morning, uh, does, your, does your life reflect such earnest seeking after God? Or um, have we settled for lesser things that fill us and distract us in our life? Because for some here, I, I know for myself as I was reading the, the psalm, the context can be a little hard to connect with because we live in a land of abundance and comfort. And, and for some of us, you might think, my life's been pretty easy. Uh, it's been pretty comfortable, and there's a lot of things that pull for my devotion and pull for my attention. Um, like C.S. Lewis stated, recorded in The Weight of Glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joys offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And for some, our, our longing and our seeking after God has just been crowded out with so many things that it, it leads to a bit of a spiritual dullness and spiritual apathy. And maybe you're here this morning and you're experiencing that. There's so much in your life. I mean, you just think of, I mean, think of always having a phone on you and, and a career and, and hobbies. And if you have kids, all the things that go on, that it can be just distracting from earnestly seeking that soul thirst of like, I need to be with God. And if you're a non-believer here today, maybe you're like, okay, uh, I don't believe in God. Or I don't really know what I believe, so this doesn't feel all too relevant. But you are a worshiper. You are a worshiper. What that means is that central to our nature as humans is that we have, we're created to worship and we ascribe worth and give ourselves to something or someone. So if it's not God, you still have something that is the, the pinnacle for you at the center of your life. And if you think about what you talk about most, what you think about most, what you spend your money on, you'll likely find that which you worship. And anything other than God himself, will, it will always leave you thirsty and it can't satisfy and it will not save. It will not satisfy you and it will not save you. It cannot deliver you. So he moves now to where does this, where does this longing and seeking lead David and point two is to this, this remembrance and response. 
So earnestly seek the faithful God as we remember and respond. And you see him in verse 2. He, he, instead of actually looking forward or at his present, where David begins is looking back. He looks back to the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. So he cast his mind to worshiping God in the tabernacle where he beheld God's power and glory displayed before David and Israel. And he knew God is not bound to that sanctuary, but wherever uh, David is, the Lord is there. I cannot flee from your presence. So the same glorious and powerful God that he worshiped in the sanctuary was present with him now in the wilderness. And he continues this, this reflection in verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This steadfast love highlights God's faithfulness to his promises for the good of those he has called. And you see this in, in David's life. It's not just a concept, but it is the reality in which he lived and longed for. When he receives God's promise to him, the covenant in 2 Samuel uh, 7, this is what he says. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. It left him in a humble awe when he realized he was the recipient of God's unfailing love and kindness. And that even here in this, this life-threatening situation, he says, because this is true, my lips will praise you. Right? Even in the midst of this life-threatening situation, my lips will praise you. And he continues in verse 4, this response as he thinks about God's love and God's power and glory. He says, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I'll lift up my hands. So we see as David's looking back and remembering the Lord's love and power and glory, it leads him to this this praising and this blessing that's not just verbal, though it is, it's, it's, it's with joyful lips, but it's actually shown in a life that reflects his character. Blessing God is obedience to him. Where God's covenant love produces loyalty, which demonstrates itself through obedience and worship. And that's really important. God's covenant love produces loyalty, which demonstrates itself through obedience and worship. And this love is better than life. And we see this truth through the countless martyrs who have died for the sake of Christ. That is a testimony to this truth. God's steadfast love is better than life. That nothing can compare if it comes to expressing God's love and obedience or, or giving up our own very life, the loss of physical life. Then it, there can be confidence in death because his love is better than actual physical life. We see Jesus display this as he enters the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan comes to him and attempts him. He tempts him with these temporal pleasures, food and, and, and um, power. I'll give you all these kings and testing God's care. And what does Jesus do? He, he proclaims God's word to Satan. He's sustained by God's love and stands in obedience. And it's chiefly shown by Christ as he continued forth towards the cross in humble obedience. He, he went to the point of death, even death on a cross because he knew the Father's love and that led him to obedience and it led him to yet not what I will, but what you will. 
And he went to the cross and died for us. And it's when you and I know and believe the gospel that you see, that we see God's steadfast love is better than life itself and anything life has to offer. Especially when you see God's faithfulness and kindness and grace despite our sin and rebellion. I remember when I first believed I was a junior in high school and uh, yeah, this time in my life I was just enslaved to pornography and lust, um, just consumed with pride and myself and all these things and just had this hollowing emptiness. And I remember hearing the gospel preached at a, at a retreat at the end of my junior year. And it, for the first time, I believed, I understood and saw like God loved me despite my act of sin and rebellion against him. And he paid for those sins. And he completely forgave me. And I did nothing. To, I did everything to deserve the opposite. You know, I deserved hell and God gave me heaven. And the only proper response, as you see here in the psalm, is a life of obedience and surrender and worship. And you, if you're not a believer here this morning, you can know this love that is better than life by repentance and faith in Christ. That, that the offer is here for you today to know Jesus Christ and know a love that is far better than life. And it's not a license to sin so that we can experience God's love because, again, it, it, if you understand God's love, it, it will display itself in obedience and worship to him. And then following... Um, the next, the next verse in the, in the psalm, in verse 5, he again comes back to this imagery of food and hunger to depict spiritual realities. So instead of thirst now, he, he states his soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And again, he mentions his lips praising the Lord with joyful lips, which is a repeated theme in this psalm. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 11. And again, I'm sure everyone in here has, has known this experience. You know, the, the, the feeling after like Thanksgiving Day, uh, you eat this meal and you're just full and content and satisfied. And David says, that, that is like my soul. When, and this is so, when does this happen for David? Look, look at verse 6. When does this actually happen when he experiences this satisfaction is when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. That he experiences present fulfillment and satisfaction as he remembers who God is and what he has done. That's a, that's a defiant faith that doesn't allow circumstances to control our communion and view of God. Because he could have said, and he, well, could have said, he does not say, my soul be satisfied and I'll praise you when I'm restored to the throne. Right? I'll praise you and I'll be satisfied when I'm back in the palace. When I'm actually eating good food again. You know, when, when, when I'm not in the wilderness running. But, it, but it's when I remember you and meditate about, upon you. And I'm sure David prayed for these things as well, for his circumstances. But his ultimate satisfaction in life were found in the God who satisfies his soul. And what consumes our minds and prayers? 
Well, what consumes our minds and prayers? Think about it in your life. Because it's really easy to start thinking, only if my circumstances change, then I would be joyful in the Lord. Then I would praise him. If I was married, if I was married to someone else, if I had a different job, if I didn't live in this place that's so frustrating, if I lived closer to family, farther from family, if I made more money, if I was just a different person altogether, different personality, then I would be satisfied when the Lord changed my circumstances. And what happens then is that this bitterness and this frustration and disappointment settle in. When we think God has slighted us due to his providence of my life, he slighted me. And then we become so intent on on seeking to change our circumstances that we become forgetful to earnestly seek God himself. Or maybe, maybe you're here and it's actually not so much your present circumstances, but it's what's happened to you in the past. That just does not make sense. Your circumstances, uh, you've lost a loved one. You, you were just put in, you have things from your child or from your family that, that you just wrestle with so deeply. And what is the remedy here? Or what are the options? It's either, you know, as David points out here, look back and remember God and meditate on him and trust him or interpret life through your own wisdom and come up with your own conclusions, right? So he says, what is the remedy? Actually look back, remember God and meditate on him and what he's done. And, and for a really just simple application, what this can look like is take, get, find a friend in the church, pick a scripture, a passage of scripture that you're going to memorize on and use that to just meditate on your, for your soul. Whether it's a psalm or, or some passage that speaks directly to where you're experiencing frustration or confusion in your relationship with the Lord, memorize that and meditate on it. Meditate thoughtfully, contemplate who God is and what he's done. Or another thing is, this is really cool. You can write this. Shane and Shane did a Psalms album. It's wonderful if you haven't listened to it. They did one on Psalm 63. So this whole week, I was just listening to Psalm 63 be sung. And that's just another way for our minds and our hearts to be uh, cast to the Lord, to think about him, to meditate on him, to just hear the truth sung, God's steadfast love. It's better than life. And to hear that sung, I wish I could sing. I would sing right now, like Brian Smith. So, so to meditate. And you look at David's meditations. If you look to verse 7, where did David's meditations and, and remembering bring him but to God's faithfulness and protection over his life? For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. He looks back to the countless times that God has spared his life. The countless times where he was running from Saul and and his soldiers and the Lord preserved him when he was outnumbered and and in the worst circumstances, God preserved him. He has been his help. He actually uses this similar, this this, uh, picture of in the shout of your wings in another psalm when he actually is writing as he's fleeing from Saul. He writes, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass. So he uses that same illustration, this this picture of parental protection. Uh, And he rests in that truth. He rests in this truth that God will protect him. 
that God will deliver him. And then actually in the midst of it, he's going to sing for joy. He's going to sing for joy in that. Not merely just like put your head down and get through, but he's actually going to sing for joy in the midst of these circumstances because he knows that in the shadow of God's wings, he's protected and he's safe. I mean, you look what he says next. My soul clings to you. I cast myself to you because why? And he knows God's right hand upholds him. I mean, I love the songs we've sung this morning. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so. And David is knowing this. There's this divine human interplay. He's, he's clinging to him, but he knows it's the Lord who upholds. It's the Lord who protects. It's the Lord who has brought his house thus far. And it's the Lord that will carry him along, moving to the future. And so you now see, uh, moving to verse 9, the last point here is just future confidence. So we earnestly seek the faith of God who satisfies as we stand in confidence. And in contrast to to David who seeks the Lord, as we remember in verse 1, David who seeks the Lord and clings to him and is upheld by him, Now we see this contrast with those who seek David's destruction. So you can see in the psalm, putting these two groups in contrast, David seeking the Lord, these men seeking the destruction of David's life. So now um, he speaks with confidence that his enemies will be judged who set themselves uh, against God's anointed one, the king. And if you look into um, the context, if you go into 2 Samuel 17, you see this to be true. First off, God uh, causes the counsel of this one man, Hushai, I think that's how you say his name, to be accepted rather than the counsel of Ahithophel. And 2 Samuel 17, 14 states this, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So you already see the Lord protecting his own, David and the faithful servants that followed him, and to bring destruction to those who oppose and set themselves against him. As David says, those who seek to destroy my life will go down into the depths of the earth. This picture of Sheol, uh, the place of the dead, and then he says it much more explicitly in the next verse in 10, what does that mean? They'll be given over to the power of the sword, and their portion... Uh, well, there'll be a portion for the jackals, for these, these beasts in the wild, meaning they're, they're going to be killed uh, as they pursue David. And in the story, we see that. 2 Samuel 18, David's smaller group of faithful servants go out and they defeat the armies of Israel, scattering them. They run through the forest, and it says that many more died as they were running in the forest. And then finally, Absalom, the leader, David's son, is also caught in the forest. It's a pretty graphic scene. He's caught in the force and also killed. And we see the Lord bringing justice and judgment upon those who rebel against him and seek the harm of his people and refuse the reign of his anointed, the king. And earlier we spoke of God's steadfast love and that is glorious and true. And he's also a powerful, mighty, and just God who doesn't stand idly by in the face of sin. He is merciful and forgiving for those who repent and turn towards him. But for all who seek life otherwise and refuse God and their sin, they will meet God as a judge. 
And like those who rejected and rebelled against David's rule, God's king, their end is the face, the consequence of their sin. And what is the consequences of our sin? It's death. Both physical death, but much more frightening and intense is spiritual death that the Bible speaks to. The end of unrepentant sin where you rebel against God and what he is, how he's created you and what he desires of you, the end of that, if it's not unrepented, is spiritual separation from God in hell forever. And that's an intense truth, and it's the same here that we see here, but it's the same today. It is the same today, but, but we, we praise God that that is not the end of the story. We praise God that that is not the end of the story. As we see David again contrasts himself, the king, with those whose portion is death. He says, but the king, in verse 10, shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exalt for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So those who swear by the king and are devoted to him take joy in his joy, take joy in his exaltation. And we see in the context of um, Psalm 63, the conspiracy of Absalom are found out. They're defeated, and, the, and David is restored back to his throne. And this surely points to David here, but it, it, it points to the greater Davidic king who was to come and fulfill that all God promised to David, and that's Jesus Christ. He was vindicated in his resurrection as he exalted by the Father and given a name above all names. Death didn't have the final say. And he was the one who, who came as the king of kings but was rejected by his own, as we even saw last week in John 1. He was rejected by his own. And they would mock him. They would mock him. They would say, you have a demon. They would mock him as he died and as he hung. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And they would say, hey, if, if you're the king, just come down. If you're the king, just come down. Prove it. And he defeated sin and death and Satan through his sacrificial and substitutionary death upon the cross where he walked in perfect obedience to the Father. And he was resurrected and he was ascended and he will return one day to establish God's kingdom in its full. Amen? And on that day, just for David, on that day the mouth of liars will be stopped as Jesus is seen for who, for who he truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that that day is either one for you of the greatest hope or the greatest terror. It's either the greatest hope or the greatest terror. So again, for the non-Christian here today, the call for you is to look back to God's act to save you through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. To repent, and what that means is just to turn away from a life of sin and running away from God and to turn towards him and submit your life to King Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life you never could and died the death you deserve. And that in him, this is amazing, that in him you can find your deepest joy, joy that nothing else will give you. You can find real life and satisfaction and you can look to the, the future with complete confidence and hope knowing that the God of all creation loves you and he has forgiven you fully through the sacrifice of his son. 
And if you want to, if you want to know more about that, talk to myself or Raymond or any of the elders. Um, I mean, it is our greatest joy to see people come and know Christ. We pray for it often. We long for it. Um, and today, today you can know Jesus Christ and know the love that is better than life. And for the Christian today, uh, would, would we seek God as our, as our greatest treasure and delight? Whether you're in the camp of feeling distracted and apathetic towards him as we fill our lives with distraction, would you fight, fight for that time with him and, and choose, I'm going to earnestly seek the Lord because it is so easy to just get dulled out and, and those feelings of apathy settle in as we just kind of go with the flow of life. But we, we, would we just defiantly fight to commune with the Lord, to wake up early, to seek time with him in prayer and his word, to prioritize gathering here weekly and these things. Actually, to, to maybe drop some of the distractions. Like, man, my life is just so hectic. I need to drop things because I feel like I don't have time or space to really pursue the Lord. So making those sacrifices to drop those things. And for those that are just feel stuck and bitter and confused with the Lord and waiting on circumstances, would you look back and remember his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his power and his glory and fill your minds with those things that you would, you would see God as your treasure and as your delight. And at every moment, in every situation, we can praise him and worship him and live lives of humble obedience that reflect what he has done. So would we be marked as a church and individuals who earnestly seek the faithful God who satisfies and um, I thought I brought it up here, but just the, the, oh, there it is. The ending of Christ is mine forevermore is actually just a great way to close the sermon. Come rejoice now, O our souls, for his love is our reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. The greatest treasure forevermore. Forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we praise you uh, that you pursued us in our darkness and in our sin and our rebellion. And that your love, uh, yeah, your love is better than life. God, and we have, we have hope beyond this life because Christ is ours forevermore. He has purchased us and saved us and redeemed us and resurrected and ascended. And he will return. God, that should fill us with such hope. And Lord, I pray, I know how, how easy it is in our lives to feel distracted and apathetic. But God, give us a hunger for you and a thirst. And would we, would we prioritize and fight to know you more and to carve out time for you and prioritize gathering with other believers, Lord, to bless us. Would this church just be a light to this community that others would see these people are different. They're not living like other people are living. God, and that in this community and at this campus, there would just be many more that would come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. Um, and God, we praise you and we love you and we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.